Will you pray with me? Oh God, God who has always been calling your people to serve, we come to this time to hear about your calling on the lives of your people. Meet us here now in this place, in this time, with these people, and show us the way. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my God. Amen. This weekend, we celebrate the work and the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., a bright example of a holy disruptor. I have to admit to you today that the work of his that I am most prone to turn to is his I Have a Dream speech, a speech full of conviction and inspiration and dreams with a hopeful eye toward the future. I tend to go there first because it stirs up these beautiful images of solidarity and commitment to a peaceful community, one where everyone loves each other and we hold hands and we sing Kumbaya. Pretty sure that's what he meant. That one makes me feel good. And I seem to allow it to afford me the option to view the ongoing work of anti-racism with a lens of sentimentality. Envisioning a utopia where we can all just get along. <laughs> Doesn't that just sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound like a reality that is worth working for? Well, in reflecting on this tendency of mine, I recognize that my go-to preference is for sentimentality over challenge. A dreamlike state over on-the-ground ownership, action, and commitment. Don't get me wrong. This was originally um, improvised in the moment declaration of dreams by the man himself. He dreamed of a just and integrated society as a united people in his I Have a Dream speech, and it's absolutely beautiful, and it's certainly nourishment and balm in the midst of struggle. But this, in, this speech wasn't intended to comfort the comfortable or to give us a false sense of reality, to make us believe that we are actually living the dream. The intention was to offer hope and light to those in the midst of the struggle and to disturb the status quo. Now, when I recognize my own location in history as a person with great privilege and power, I recognize that today, the work of Martin Luther King that I need to hear is his letter from Birmingham jail. Because while part of King's dream has been realized, much of it has not. And if we are truly honest with ourselves, we still have a long way to go. One of my beloved colleagues and local pastor, Reverend Garrison Lockley, he's the pastor at Bethel AME, was recently quoted in a news article announcing the NAACP-sponsored service that, were, that I spoke about earlier that's happening tomorrow evening at Mount Olive Baptist Church here in Pottstown. 
And while reflecting on one of his favorite sayings of Dr. King, he was quoted as saying, I really believe that when we're silent on the things that matter in our community, we will continue to see problems in our community. We're still dealing with homelessness. We're still dealing with gun violence. We're still dealing with drug activity, with poverty, with fair funding for education. And all of these have a racial component. So it's important for all stakeholders to come together to address the issues and address the underlying racism that continues to plague our society. We need to do this for the betterment of our community, for the future of our children. This is driving me a bit bonkers. Just gonna. <clears throat> so in other words, we still have a long way to go. There is still work in front of us, and while hopes and dreams may help carry us in the struggle, we still have a lot to face within ourselves and within our community. The Reverend Dr. King penned the famous letter from Birmingham jail in an actual jail cell. He was arrested for refusing to cease participating in a nonviolent demonstration in Birmingham. It was addressed to clergymen. So this wasn't just to like some general public. These were to the religious folks, his colleagues. They were criticizing him for his work, which resulted in his arrest. So basically, it's your fault. Like, you should have known better, right? In his letter, he eloquently expressed his convictions, why this, this work is important. But then he turned pointed attention to the nature of the criticism itself, as well as the resulting silence and complacency that he witnessed from the white church and its leaders. And I'd like to share with you two sections from this speech that are particular, particularly poignant. And I apologize that my voice might not be quite as powerful <laughs> as the man himself. We're actually going to post him reading this letter um, to our Facebook page um, later this afternoon, so you can hear it better. Anyway, he writes, I must make two confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the, the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with the goal that you seek, who, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. That's not familiar, right? Okay. Who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. 
Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So if that's not enough, one more disappointment. I have been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, and he names a couple, a couple people who are doing some good work. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. I had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would become our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous. and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Lastly, he wrote, this is maybe the one that that hits me right in the gut. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed. and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven. I love that. And had to obey God rather than men. They were small in number, but big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated. That was God. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> yes. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such evils, such as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. This is what hurts, right? The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, 
the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. Does, any, does that feel relevant at, at all to you? How do these words sit with you? For me, these, weird, these words pierce through my best of intentions, right? Of course I'm working for anti-racism. Of course I'm trying to love my neighbor. Of course I'm trying to be faithful. But trying? What does that do? And it compels me to ask myself some serious questions. Am I a disturber of injustice or am I disturbed by the disturbers? Because that is who called Martin Luther King an extremist. Can I see what is happening around me or do I feel compelled to do something about it? Or do I preserve the status quo? Maybe it causes you to ask some similar questions. On this second Sunday of Epiphany, Reverend Dr. King's letter seems to be a fitting companion. In both of our passages today, we greet servants of God, prophets, messengers, anointed people who were called to be disturbers. Jesus wasn't the first and he wasn't the last. Our whole biblical narrative is full of people who God has called to be disturbers. <laughs> In our Old Testament reading, the author writes about being intimately known by God and called for a specific purpose to bring restoration to their people, Israel, who were, as the servant writes, despised and rejected by the nations, enslaved by the powerful. Story as old as time. But the benefit of that restoration had even farther reaching effects than just for Israel, because Israel was never called to be blessed, period. They're called to be blessed to be a blessing. Their restoration and healing also meant, was meant to provide light to the nations. God's light that was always intended to extend to the whole world, and that is what happens when disruptors disrupt. Generations later, in John's gospel, the man Jesus was revealed to be the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, who became a liberator, a healer, a savior, and even his cousin, John the Baptist. That's who we're talking about. He knew Jesus, obviously. But even his cousin was caught by surprise. At 30 years old, Jesus came to John to be baptized. And when he did, John recognized that this was the Son of God. It wasn't just cousin Jesus. Holy cow, this guy, it's bigger than that. This spirit-indwelled man, God made flesh, and he couldn't help but tell everyone that he, could, that he could tell. In response, two of John's disciples were compelled to follow after Jesus. And Jesus' invitation was simple. Come and see. And those words have been ringing in my, in my heart this week. 
Because when those disciples answered the simple call, what they witnessed over the next three years completely changed their life. In Jesus, they witnessed what resurrection looked like in the dead and the barely living. Places of suffering, affliction, physical and spiritual need that needed disruption, accompaniment, and often deliverance for people living at the end of their rope, out of control and rejected by those in power. Jesus taught and equipped his disciples to perform the same work and even told them, you're going to do greater things than me which seems crazy, but it's true, they did. And those disciples made more disciples, and those disciples made more disciples. And then centuries later, one of those disciples began pastoring a church in Montgomery, Alabama at the age of 25 and ultimately became one of the most prominent members in the civil rights movement. He loved Jesus. He loved Jesus. Let me remind you of that. This wasn't some uh, social justice thing that Martin Luther King Jr. made up in his brain that he was going to stand for and then paste Jesus' name on it. No. He loved Jesus and therefore was compelled to fight. He received the call of that same liberative work that Jesus was called to. He too, like many others before him, was called for a purpose. A purpose that extended beyond his own good and even the good of those that he was closest to. And he continues to inspire us some 50 years after his death. So what happens when we answer Jesus' invitation to come and see? What difference does Jesus make today? Recalling Reverend Lockley's words from earlier about the problems that still exist today, what happens when followers of Jesus, stakeholders as he described us, say yes to the call of Jesus? Things change and they become transformed. Sometimes it's not overnight, sometimes it's the long view. But people and power structures change, and they're transformed. Unhoused people gain safe shelter. Gun violence ceases to plague neighborhoods. People are delivered from clutches of addiction. Everyone has what they need to survive. And children from all communities receive a fair, equitable, and fully resourced education, irrespective of return to the heart of Jesus, if we listen If we say, I don't have the power to do this on my own, but oh God, with your help. I want to come and see. So on this Sunday, when we recognize these disruptors in our human family, those with recognizable names and those we might not recognize, let us first give thanks. Thanks for their example. Thanks for their teaching. Thanks for the work that they have done. But let us not stop there. May their examples also move us to commit ourselves anew, to staying awake to the world around us and answer the invitation to faithful action 
to accept the call to be disruptors ourselves when called upon to do so. May it be so. Let us pray.